I'm David Pope. And I am Christian Silvestri. And this is the Safety Frontiers Podcast. In the last episode, we discussed the evolution of safety and where we are today. In particular, as Christian calls them, first generation and second generation safety. So to recap, in the 80s, first generation safety focused on eliminating hazards. But it didn't take us long to realise we couldn't eliminate all the hazards, so we trained people to avoid contact with the remaining hazards. This led to safety management systems and a mindset of compliance. First generation safety was a huge step forward for safety, there's no doubt about that. But people were still having incidents. By the 90s, we noticed people weren't thinking enough about their safety. So we talked to people about how important safety was, as if they didn't already know, and asked them to think safety, put safety first, or keep safety front of mind, to make safety more conscious for them. We did this by using the social studies of the day, which was limited to care and trust, safety as a value, personal commitment, a quality of relationships, or a sense of belonging. Again, it led to a a huge rise in conversations about safety and a mindset of safety is a deliberate choice. Second generation safety was a smaller step forward for safety, but people were still having incidents. In my summary, Christian, did, um, did I get that right? You certainly did. Now, it might be worth mentioning that first generation safety was based on the premise that if people knew what hazard could hurt them, and how to avoid contact, they would not have had an incident. Now, if only that was 100% true. And second generation safety was based on the premise that if people knew how important safety was, because someone cared about them or they trusted them, they would not have an incident. If only that was 100% true. Yeah, another one. So first and second generation safety might get someone to open up about the shortcomings of a workplace or what someone else did, But in my view, it's unlikely to get them to open up about what they did because there's a lot of shame and embarrassment if safety really is a deliberate choice. Exactly. So we need an approach which helps everyone understand why we do what we do without shame so we can use our experiences to improve and be safer. So what you're saying is that first and second generation safety are good to have, and you know, because of the improvements, we need to be grateful to have them, but they're not enough to prevent, still prevent many of these incidents. What I'm hearing is that you know, we need to teach people more about the human condition if we want to improve safety further. Is that right? Well, I think so. Now, it seems to me that safety, or the way that we approach safety, is addicted to three basic approaches. Now, fixing the environment, you know, eliminating the hazard, improving the system, and making safety more conscious. Now, the reason why I started looking outside these traditional approaches was because of the experiences that I had. Working as a lead auditor for LRQA, I noticed and was surprised that the workplaces with the best safety management system didn't, didn't always have good safety performances. Now, conducting leadership programs about care and trust, you know, safety as a value, personal commitment, quality of relationships or a sense of belonging, I also noticed and was surprised that the best leadership didn't always have good safety performances. 
got mm. me thinking that there was something missing. Something missing. Is, is that the reason why you titled your book The th Third Generation Safety, The Missing Piece? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, okay. there, there's a whole new different way of thinking about safety that is being ignored, even though we have known about it for some time thanks to brain science. Now, I must admit, I came to the conclusion that something was missing very reluctantly. It's not something that I wanted to do. Now, I had invested 15 years in first and second generation and things were going pretty well. You know, I was fairly busy and I was being booked for over 200 days a year. But something just wasn't right. As my old boss used to tell me, when the data doesn't fit the model, the only thing to do is to change the model. Yeah. Anything yeah. else is a waste. Absolutely. So 15 years ago, I started looking into other things. And one of the things that I looked into was inattention. Now, sometimes it got called mistakes, human error, misjudgment, miscalculations. To me, they were all words for being human. I found it everywhere, at work and outside work. Really? I'll bet it's um, not as bad as we see today. Clearly still there. That's right. I think it's getting worse. And it's getting worse outside of work yeah. as much as it is inside of work. Now, the interesting thing for me was that although everyone, everyone acknowledged the existence of inattention, people think there is nothing that can be done about it. Now, that's just not true. We know that systems or leadership are good to have, but are not enough to deal with inattention in any kind of effective way. It wasn't until I started looking at brain science that I really began to understand how inattention came about and what could be done about it. And that is what third generation safety is about, helping people to understand how inattention comes about and what they could do to minimise it. And nothing gets thrown out. So we use third generation safety in conjunction with first and second generation. So all the work done to date is still applicable, but we need something else to get to the next level of safety performance. In other words, uh, the bottom line is we need a, a new way of thinking about safety that doesn't discard first and second generation safety, but can add this cumulative additive to what we already have in place to help us improve, right? So, so maybe this is a great spot to actually ask the question from your perspective and from you know, your obvious research and learnings around this, what is third generation safety? So given that we're talking about the human condition, the best way to explain it is by asking a fundamental question about human behavior. Yep. And that question is, why do people make such poor in-the-moment decisions? Now, I'll use some examples from everyday life just to give people an understanding of what we're talking about. So ask yourself this question, why would a conservative risk-adverse accountant get a speeding ticket to avoid arriving two minutes late for a meeting that wasn't that important? It's behaviour that is so out of character. Mm, yeah. Uh, I know. I actually know someone who fits fits that description, uh, and gets his fair share of of speeding tickets. You know, he he's late to everything. I'm sure he'll be running late to his own funeral. This guy. Look, another example is why would a rational engineer drive while really tired after seeing a commercial warning of the risks an hour before? And we've all seen those ads. Or why would a responsible yeah. parent with children in the car? text while driving when they know it's illegal and increases the risk significantly. Don't yeah. they care about their kids' safety, let alone theirs? So when we ask why do people do these things, 
In these three scenarios and countless others we have heard, the conscious mind is fully informed, yet people still do it. Now, as it turns out, there are more forces at play influencing what we do than we knew nothing about until recently. So this is new information. It has come to light in the last 10 years. In fact, most of it in the last five years. And it's filtering down to safety rather slowly. That's a really interesting point about the conscious mind is fully informed. It really resonates strongly with me around that behaviour. So what's the latest research told us around this, Christian? So the research actually maps the activity in our brain using a functional MRI or an fMRI. Now, most people know uh, a traditional MRI. I mean, do you know the difference between the two? The traditional MRI takes photos, and it's it's more of a static picture, where the fMRI lets us see blood flow um, as as it's happening. So from a brain scanning perspective, you know, we, we know which parts of the brain are active or are receiving blood at the time. So this gives us a much clearer understanding of why people do what they do. So fMRIs in the hand of brain scientists show that neurochemicals come into play at various critical moments in situations, such as when we're rushing, frustrated or mentally tired. And neurochemicals also pre-program our autopilot responses. Now, these neurochemicals control what we do in a way we never imagined and help explain why people make such poor in-the-moment decisions. But it all happens below our conscious awareness. And because it happens below our conscious awareness, most people catastrophically underestimate how important it is and Mm. ignore it. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Which is unfortunate because it is much more powerful than what happens in our conscious mind. So much so... Brain scientists estimate that 95% of what we do originates subconsciously, a part of the brain we're not aware of. So what you're saying uh, is most of what we do, we would call it the back of mind function, that, that subconscious, even though it may feel like it's front of mind. I know I've read that in plenty of books about the brain. Can you give us any examples? Sure. We use a couple of examples when we do some of our training. So we ask people, when you got in your car this morning, did you start it or did you put your seatbelt on first? When you were getting dressed, did you put your sock on your left foot first or your right foot first? Right foot, yeah. Yeah. Do you shower first, then brush your teeth, or do you brush your teeth, then shower? That makes an assumption that they do both every morning. (laughs) Yep, exactly. (laughs) And then we say to them, look, whether you know or don't know doesn't really matter. What matters is to realise that you do it in the same way every day without giving it much thought because you have done it plenty of times before. That makes it subconscious, under the surface. You are aware of what you are doing, but you are not making active conscious decisions at every step, even though it may feel like it. Because if you did, you need a nap by the time you got to work. Yeah. And what the brain scientists are trying to tell us is that repetition enables us to do many things without a lot of conscious thought. Now, what that brings us to is what I call the first behavioral law of brain science. And that is what you repeat, you get to keep. What you repeat, you get to keep. And um, that's like Hebb's law, isn't it? Um, neurons that fire together, wire together? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the, envir- it's, it's the behavioral equivalent of Hebb's law. 
Oh, okay. But people tell me, they go, Christian, whether, you, whether I put my sock on my left foot first or my right foot first is one thing. Now, there's not much danger with doing that. That's not a safety issue. If it was dangerous and there was a safety issue, I wouldn't allow myself to do that in autopilot. Okay, I say, well, let's look at the most dangerous thing you're going to do today, the drive home. Have you ever driven home and can't remember much? Sure. Just about every, every time I drive. But, you know, the, key, the interesting question is why can't we remember much? Well, it's because when we do things in autopilot, our memories get laid down very flimsily because we're not paying a lot of attention to things and it is yeah. difficult to recall them. So when you drive in autopilot, so which mind do you think is in control, the conscious or the subconscious? Subconscious. So do you make a deliberate choice at a certain point in time to let your autopilot take over or does it happen automatically? I don't decide. Does anyone decide? No, actions? no one decides consciously. It happens automatically without us even knowing about it. And if it happens to us, could it also happen to people at work, especially those doing repetitive tasks day after day? Aren't we biologically wired to, to do it this way? We are. It's Neurobiology 101, and we can't turn it off. Now, anyone that tries to address autopilot by stopping it, which is typically what I see, it's at least in the safety field, in my view, is off with the pixies and needs to hit the neurobiology textbooks pronto. Yeah, exactly. Is there any explanation for why what we do feels conscious? You know, like, like we made that deliberate choice, but we know it's been driven from subconscious. Well, it has to do with the sequence of operations in our brain when we're deciding or determining a behaviour. So there are two parts involved. The conscious processing, we are aware of it, and it takes place in the prefrontal cortex. Yep. The subconscious activity, which we are not aware of, takes place in the limbic system. Now, what neuroscience has shown is that the last step before the decision or behaviour is made is the conscious processing piece. Because that's the only thing we are aware of, we think everything we do is conscious. Brain science shows that the conscious mind processes what the subconscious mind serves up to it without us being aware of it. So the conscious part engages last in the brain processes. Correct. And it's the only thing that we're aware of, so it feels like it is the only thing we do. Is that, is, is, is that why we all assume, or why we assume all behaviours are conscious? Look, it looks that way to me. And that assumption was fine up to 10 years ago because that was all we knew. These days, we know better. So, so what do we know these days about, about subconscious, the subconscious mind? Well, the subconscious mind uses the outcome of our experiences to establish internal patterns, you know, models of the way the world works, and designed to respond to the world promptly. It's a trait we got from our ancestors to maximise our chances of survival. There's a whole bunch of science associated with that. So these internal patterns, which are the models of how we think the world works, and what we do in response to that is wired in and enacted by internal and external cues. It's a very energy-efficient way for the brain to get things done. 
Now we develop these for most things we do because most things we do, we do plenty of times and we have done plenty of times before. Yep. Now there is some interesting brain science with this, but for the moment, we just need to understand that once something becomes familiar, it feels safe. And once it feels safe, the conscious mind tends not to get involved. It goes off and does something else. And most of the things that it tends to do is that it tends to time travel, it tends to think about the past, you know, what could I have done better? And it also thinks about the future to try and predict potentially what could happen in order to prepare a response. That's fascinating. And a, a really, a really, I think a really important part of understanding why we do what we do but the key question always for us is on safety frontiers is how can we use this in safety? Well, if we have a look at you know, where safety lands, up until now, I've only ever seen it land on three things. Yeah. We either fix the environment, we improve the system, or we make safety more conscious through social means. That only uses external cues. It's a very outside-in approach. It works, but only up to a point. The problem, of course, is that first-generation safety and second-generation safety do nothing to address where most of our decisions originate from our recurring internal patterns, which is the realm of the subconscious mind. So, so what, is, what, is, what does third-generation safety do then? Well, it gives people a different perspective from which to interpret their experiences and it provides a suite of whole of brain techniques that rewire those recurrent internal patterns where so many decisions originate. And in doing so, we upgrade people's skills and habits to safer ones. So they can be habitually safer and avoid many incidents. So rather than being outside in, it's inside out. We're trying, to, we're trying to rewire the responses in order for them to be automatically safer. So is, would it be right to say that's why first and second generation safety have helped us to get where we are, but struggle to help us to improve further because of this in outside-in approach versus an inside-out approach? Look, I think so, but it also there's also sort of another story that we need to expose, I guess. Oh, okay, yeah. So first generation and second generation have resulted in an unintentional consequence. Now, when we take away hazards, when we pre-prepare paperwork and we have conversations about safety, what we do is we condition people to ignore the importance of their own skills and habits, yeah. which brings us to what I call the second behavioural law of brain science. So see if you can finish this sentence. The more you do for someone, the less they do for... Themselves, of course. <laughs> and, and the more outside-in things we do for them, the worse they get at the inside-out things. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So when things that can hurt us are dealt with by someone else, we tend to expect that in the future that will also happen and we pay less attention to them. It doesn't happen consciously. It's an internal pattern humans develop without even knowing about it. Yeah. Well, why would you look for hazards when most of the worst ones have been, been eliminated? Right. You know? why, why would you... You know, think about how to do a job when there's already a set of yeah. fully articulated instructions. Why would you think about safety when someone around you soon is going to come over and have a chat to you about it? Yeah. I guess, I guess you know, 
modern life with mobile phones and and other technologies also play again a critical role in 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 this in 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 what we're seeing today i think it just exacerbates the issue of being human that's the way that i would put it Hmm. so to me only using outside in strategies is like trying to make a tastier cake just adding more icing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can make it a little tastier, but it will never be the tastiest if you are not yeah. using the best ingredients or changing the cooking regime. Right? We need to use everything at our disposal to make the best cake. And it's no different in safety. We need first generation, second generation, as well as third generation to get the best outcome, to use everything at our disposal in order to make safety as good as it can be. I guess when people only deal with safety from an outside in... They don't learn how to keep control of their own safety because we've got all of these externals helping. When people do all of the outside-in things for them, they feel like you know they're being safe. Is that the reason why outside-in safety is so popular? Because of this feeling of safe and this possibly social approach? Well, when I've asked that, uh, the answer for most people is yes. Now, yeah, okay. I think it's important to make use of anything at our disposal for safety. Brain science is particularly important because being human is a universal constant. We were all human before our nationality, before our language, or even before our culture. Now, these are overlays on top of what comes first, our humanity. And I'm not saying the overlays don't have a role to play, but without understanding the fundamental drivers of being human, these overlays are always going to struggle because they are missing something. So these days, other disciplines that deal with human behaviour are making full use of the discoveries of brain science. Absolutely. In a big way. Yeah, absolutely. So why, why is it that it's not happening in safety? So, what a great question. Right? A question that we're going to dive in more deeply in the future, Christian. Yeah, but look, the simple answer for me is that it appears that safety is addicted to fixing the environment, improving the system and making safety more conscious. Yeah. That is it. That's the box yeah. and nobody wants to step outside the box. And up until 10 years ago, we thought that was all there was. But now we know better. I think it is critical to use everything at our disposal to keep people safe. And unfortunately, we're missing a piece. The piece brain science says does all the work in being human and it's the most important to understand if we are to get better influencing behaviour. Yeah. And that piece is about how the subconscious mind works. Well, you've written a book about how to use the subconscious to help us with safety. So I was going to ask you, where, where can people get a copy of that? There's more in the book if people want it. You can get it from habitsafe.com.au or Kobo if you want it uh, electronically. But yeah, but I also, I also understand uh, it has come back from the printer's for its third printing run. So congratulations on that. Thanks. Look, who would have thought we would have sold over 3,000 copies? But we have. Now, if you want to know more about this, it's probably a good place to start. And I read through over 2,000 scientific papers to write the book and referenced over 60 of them in the book. There is also a recommended reading list on our website, habitsafe.com.au, if you're interested in what I've put in the book and where it came from. Yeah, okay. This might be a great place to, to finish. Um, so thank you, Christian. Um, that concludes the podcast f- for today. Thank you all for, for joining us and for listening. In the next podcast, we'll explore what neuroscience is discovering about inattention. 
an interesting one. Hope you can join us then.